a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome to a Tuesday edition of this Facebook Live. It's an interesting day today. Something is playing out right now in the United States Senate that is truly unprecedented. There is a hearing of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions uh, Committee within the United States Senate before the various senators who make up this panel are a number of witnesses, to include Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. He is answering some tough questions from Republicans and Democrats, as well appearing before this committee of senators is the director of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield. He's a gentleman you've seen a number of times speak. Uh, He has a distinctive beard. Uh, It's all beard, no mustache. He uh, has been engaged in public service for some time and has a fascinating perspective and background, which we've covered on my radio program. Also, a few other witnesses testifying, and they are talking about the circumstances required and our trajectory towards uh, the reopening of both businesses and schools. So how do we get this country back to some semblance of normalcy? The medical experts right now are answering questions like that. In fact, uh, speaking right now, you can see here, this is uh, Dr. Robert Redfield. He is the uh, director of the CDC. You'll notice that, uh, here's one of the senators questioning the doctor, that they are doing so under unique circumstances. When I was a staffer in Washington, D.C., committee hearings like this were set up uh, in, in small close quarters, cramped rooms. You fought your way into a seat. The senators were close to one another. The witnesses were often uh, crammed together shoulder to shoulder at small tables. Well, of course, uh, that's impossible today as you and I together under the guidance of these very medical professionals engage in this good social distancing. Uh, we know that we got to find another way to get things done. And so uh, it's a video conference type thing, which is interesting. Uh, A number of the gentlemen appearing, uh, including Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield, are both in uh, self-quarantine, self-isolation right now, participating in this hearing. It's unprecedented. I, uh, to my memory, cannot think of a pre-coronavirus era event, which included the comments of witnesses and the testimony of witnesses uh, coming in this fashion. Uh, It's an absolutely fascinating and historic event, and uh, you're witnessing it right now. This hearing is going to go on for a long time. Four witnesses, 20-plus senators. Each one of those senators is given five minutes to ask questions per round. And this questioning could go on 
for multiple rounds. I point out some of the uh, some of the bigger names uh, who make up the field of senators uh, and the members of senators who occupy a position on this committee. That includes Mitt Romney. He is yet to ask questions. Uh, he, one of the more junior members of the committee, will be towards uh, the, the end of the list. Uh, we have also heard from Bernie Sanders. He had a lot of questions, uh, as you may imagine, about the availability of vaccines and treatment and various therapies to help aid in this uh, coronavirus recovery uh, and how available they might be to the uh, the underprivileged. Will these things be free uh, or not? Let me just show you real quickly. Here's a shot of the hearing room. This is what I just described to you. Uh, it so typically is crammed shoulder to shoulder. Uh, Every one of those seats there would be occupied by a senator, both on, on the lower level, that black table there, as well as the as well as the the upper level. Uh, here's Senator Warren. Let's, uh, I wonder if we can dip in and hear what she has to say. I know that about 80,000 people have died and 33 million people are out of work. Dr. Fauci, you have advised six presidents. You have battled deadly viruses for your entire career. So I just like to hear your honest opinion. Do we have the coronavirus contained? Uh, Senator, thank you for the question. Uh, right now, it, it depends on what you mean by containment. If you think that we have it completely under control, you know, I mean, if you look at the, the dynamics of the outbreak, we are seeing a diminution of hospitalizations and infections in some places, such as in New York City, which has plateaued and starting to come down, New Orleans, but in other parts of the country, we are seeing spikes. So when you look at the dynamics of new cases, even though some are coming down, the, the, the curve looks flat with some slight coming down. So I think we're going in the right direction. But the right direction does not mean we have by any means total control of this outbreak. So the right direction, as I understand it, we have about 25,000 new infections a day and over 2,000 deaths a day. I, I think those are the right numbers. And some are estimating we could be at 200,000 cases a day by June. Is that right, Dr. Fauci? Uh, I, don't, I don't foresee that as 200,000 new cases by June. I am hoping and looking at the dynamics of things starting to flatten off and come down, that we will be much, much better than that, Senator. I mean, I but think that's really right now, just, just so I understand, we are right now at 2,000 new infections a day and uh, 25,000 new infections a day and 2,000 deaths a day. Right. And that's where we are right now. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So, so let me just ask, it, 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 we know that it is possible to get this virus under better control. Other countries have done it, like South Korea, but we are now three months into this pandemic, and basically we've continued to set records for the number of people who are diagnosed and the number of people who die. Dr. Fauci, you recently said that a second wave of coronavirus in the fall was, quote, inevitable, but that if America, quote, puts in place all the countermeasures that you need to address this, we should do reasonably well. And the countermeasures you identified are things like uh, continued social distancing, significantly more testing, widespread contact tracing. You also said that if America doesn't do what it takes, and this is your quote, we could be in for a bad fall and a bad winter. 
So right now we're about 16 weeks away from Labor Day. That's about the same length of time since the virus was first detected here in the U.S. Do we have enough robust countermeasures in place that we don't have to worry about a bad fall in winter? Uh, right now, the projection, as you've heard from Admiral Giroir, with regard to testing and other elements that would be needed to respond, the projection is that by the time we get to the end of the summer and early fall, that we will have that in place. That okay. is the projection that I get. We, we don't have it in place now, but we are projecting that we'll have it in place. And let me just ask the other side of this. If we don't do better on testing, on contact tracing, and on social distancing, will deaths from coronavirus necessarily increase? Uh, of course, if you do not do an adequate response, we will have the deleterious consequence of more infections and more deaths. And that's the reason why you quoted me, Senator, quite correctly in everything you said. And I will stand by that. If we do not respond in an adequate way when the fall comes, given that it is without a doubt that there will be infections that will be in the community, then we run the risk of having a resurgence. I would hope by that point in time, in the fall, that we have more than enough to respond adequately. But if I, we don't, there will be problems. I appreciate your hope, and I wish we could tell the American people that the federal government has this pandemic. Step away here from. But we can't. And step fact, away here from. I've said that the virus is not under. From these remarks, from, these, from this exchange between various United States senators who uh, are currently serving on the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee within the United States Senate as they question the health officials which are guiding the policy of our coronavirus response here across the country. Uh, you heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci just there as he answered questions put to him by Senator Elizabeth Warren regarding uh, if we don't get this under control, will there be more deaths? Pretty simple question uh, and a pretty simple answer, which is, uh, of course, yes. You're going to see a lot of that simplicity in this hearing if you choose to follow it throughout the day. And if I'm honest, uh, if I do my math correctly, this is going to continue for, uh, for hours to come. As I mentioned, there are 20 plus senators participating. Each of them are allotted five minutes for questioning per round. And we don't yet know how many rounds will be uh, or will transpire in this hearing. So I'm going to leave the hearing alone for a bit. Uh, I know that the title of this video here is Are We Focused on the Correct Numbers? So uh, let me let me bring up uh, that point. Let me talk to you for a few minutes about that. It's going to come up on my radio program today. I'm on the air from one o'clock until three o'clock on KSL News Radio. If this hearing happens to go uh, into into that time slot, uh, we may have to step away and hear from what the, the senators have to ask and what the experts have to answer. Uh, but the plan right now is to jump right in as a, a normal day. So looking forward to that. And on the program today, we are going to talk about the types of numbers being shared by the task force uh, and all the data which is released each day on coronavirus.utah.gov. Uh, the question I ask is, are we getting the right data? Now, if you remember a conversation I had 
with a friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Mobley, MobleyMD.com. He'll be on the program again today, but he and I spoke last week and he pointed out a few important things when it comes to numbers. And that being this idea that cumulative data is and can be misleading and it can certainly be used to stir up fear. Each day we would hear how many additional individuals uh, had tested positive for the coronavirus. So we had a total number there, a cumulative number, which continued to grow. We also had the number of Utahns uh, who had lost their lives as a result of the coronavirus reported to us each day. Another cumulative number, which could only grow and grow each day. <clears throat> Dr. Mobley said, again, as a doctor himself, a medical professional, one who has dedicated his life to the study and furtherance of health, he said that the data, which would be mo of most use to you and me, as we decide how to behave and react and respond, and which advice to follow as we are here in Utah, a place where we are given that freedom and those liberties to, to, to respond to the advice uh, which we choose. Uh, he said that the best data to get would be more in terms of capacity. If you think back to the flatten the curve days, that was a deal, or that was an effort rather, to make sure that we did not stress the medical facilities capacity, that the hospitals, the ICUs were able to expand and contrast and operate within their capacity. Flatten the curve was an effort to maintain our hospital capacity. We have not only here in Utah, where we've done it very, very well, but across the country, for the most part, we have uh, operated in a way that has uh, not stretched to the max capacity our medical facilities and hospitals. But how do we know that? Not much data has been released to help us understand that. Well, it was not many days after the conversation I had with Dr. Mobley where he voiced his concerns about the absence of that data here in the state of Utah that it began appearing on the coronavirus.utah.gov website. And in fact, just yesterday, Dr. Angela Dunn, in her now every other day <clears throat> delivery of the situational update, of our fight against this coronavirus here in Utah, she revealed how many individuals were hospitalized currently. Yesterday, I believe, at the time of the press briefing, the number was 95. 95 individuals were occupying hospital beds here in the state of Utah as they fought the coronavirus. Now, we have many more than 95 hospital beds here in the state of Utah. Uh, we did not meet our capacity. We are not there. We have done a great job flattening this curve and keeping <clears throat> the capacity of hospitals uh, unchallenged. We're doing very well on that front. Another piece of information that Dr. Mobley said would be important and valuable to us has to do with demographics. Another uh, set of data, which had just up until the other day not been made available by the coronavirus task force, and that changed. If you go onto the website right now, the website right there, coronavirus.utah.gov, you will see that in fact, we are able to uh, observe the demographic data. We know the breakdown of gender, age, race. We also know, we also know the prevalence of the coronavirus among uh, various populations based on their comorbidities. Those are 
the underlying ailments that individuals may have, which could arise uh, or could lead to complications when mixed with the coronavirus. It's very informative information. I'm going to have Dr. Mobley on my program today to talk about the importance of that data and how he looks at it as a medical professional himself. Looking forward to that conversation. And then I'm going to talk about uh, PPP, the Payroll Protection Program. It is something which has been discussed a number of times. It has been debated in Congress a number of times. In fact, uh, additional uh, pots of money have been poured into this program. But is it working? Is it working? I started yesterday to tell a story about some time I spent over the weekend with a friend of mine who is a small business owner. He has been hit very hard by the coronavirus. The type of business he's in is uh, making signs for businesses. When a new business comes in and occupies a, a location, he knocks on their door as soon as he can and says, hey, you know, I could make you a sign uh, up over there, one of these big, elaborate, illuminated signs. That's the type of work he does. I can make you a sign advertising to all passers-by the nature of your business and the name uh, which, you, which, you, <laughs> which you go by. And, well, as <clears throat> new businesses are not exactly in a position to, to get going and to kick off, uh, uh, you know, a new chapter in, in their story, there is also not much business trickling down to this friend of mine, the sign maker. And so what does that mean? It means that in order to uh, stay in business, to compensate his employees, to keep the lights on, <clears throat> and continue to fight against the ravages, the economic ravages of this coronavirus, he needs a little bit of help. And he heard of this payroll protection program, and he went to his banker and said, uh, I could use some of that. I could use some of that money uh, to make sure that my own livelihood is maintained, so too uh, is the livelihood of those who I employ. And he thus far has been unable to secure that money. He speculates that there are much larger companies ahead of him in line. And if you Google around, if you keep an eye on the various message boards, Reddit, places like that, you'll see that there are many experiencing uh, similar frustrations. There are many small business owners who are yet to receive payroll protection program monies. The first round of money that was included in that 2.2 some odd trillion dollar package passed by Congress, uh, the money within that package set aside for this PPP uh, ran out very quickly. Now, Congress did get back together and they passed a second round of funding for the program. And that's the money right now being used to keep some of these businesses afloat. And my fingers are crossed that it uh, is a benefit to folks like my friend. I also happened to run into uh, another friend of mine over the weekend. Now, I, I talk about all these interactions with friends. Don't you worry. We were engaged in appropriate uh, social distancing and, uh, and the like. But I saw a few friends, and one of these friends of mine is a chief of staff for one of uh, Utah's members of Congress. And I asked him, how are, how are things going? How uh, is the business of the office? How uh, are staffers holding up? What type of work are they engaged in? What is life like for you in the office these days? And he uh, made it known to me that while 
you know, Congress, the House in particular, is not in session right now. And much of the work has transitioned to either online uh, or over the phone uh, that the type of work which is occupying most of his time and the time of uh, the staffers is helping constituent companies within the district in securing these payroll protection program loans and seeking out the other benefits available to them as they combat the, as I phrased it earlier, the economic ravages of this coronavirus. It's a heartbreaking thing, and I hope that, uh, I hope that these offices are able to lend the, the hand and give the help that is so needed by these small businesses. Now, with that said, with that said, I want to return to a point I, I made yesterday, and it has to do with uh, the future of business here in the United States. There was a, a question posed on social media the other day by the state auditor of the state of Utah, John Dougal. He said, do you think that once we emerge on the other side of this coronavirus, that companies, businesses, large and small, will they, will, will the new standard be a more lean way of doing business or a more robust way of doing business? Lean, meaning fewer employees, uh, less overhead, maybe uh, more humble facilities from which to operate, or wherever it is, uh, you find ways to cut costs. Or will it be more robust, a bigger, beefier operation? The thought there being that maybe with a more beefy and robust operation, you could be better positioned to absorb the blows of the unforeseen like this coronavirus. And I don't know the answer. I don't know uh, if, if it will be more lean or more robust. But what I do hope is that I hope that some of these businesses will look to the advice handed down to, uh, you know, individuals when they meet with their financial advisor or they turn to the Dave Ramsey book or they uh, Google around looking for ways to best manage their own uh, personal economy, their household economy, and how to stand ready to weather the unexpected. I hope that the idea of a rainy day fund would be more of a priority for so many businesses. And I know, I know that the margins vary from business to business, that it is more uh, doable or feasible for one business to squirrel away a bunch of money to save it for a rainy day than it is for another business. But, you know, some people do it. Some businesses do it. And I would just point out that while it is heartbreaking, it is also surprising that this, what, we're eight, let's say 12 weeks into this mess. So let's say 12 weeks into uh, dramatically reduced revenue. Maybe the businesses who are able to emerge or the businesses that are able to emerge after this is all behind us may take some time to set some money aside so that if revenue were to be halted for a time, they would be able to, if facing another circumstance like the one we're enduring today, be able to maintain their operational expenses, maintain their payroll, maintain their solvency. Now, I don't know. I could be a, a, a guy out to lunch. Who knows? Uh, but if the advice is good for the family, 
It's got to be good for the business. That's the way I see it. We're also on today's program going to talk about bump stocks. A friend of mine who's been on my program uh, a number of times, Clark Apotion, chairman of the Utah Shooting Sports Council. You remember way back when the topic of bump stocks was making all the headlines around the country. He entered into a a lawsuit where he was temporarily, now this was uh, after it was ruled by the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, that uh, bump stocks were no longer a legal thing to be possessed by Americans. Uh, Clark Apotion, he said, hold on a second, maybe I ought to go uh, interact with the courts and see if if that's a, a legal ruling. Anyway, he for a time uh, did receive uh, a stay on that uh, on that ruling, at least as it applied to him. So there was one man in the country for a brief period of time who was legally able to possess a, a bump stock, and that was Clark Apotion. Uh, well, that changed not long after and he you know had, did have to surrender his bump stock but he has continued his fight in the courts and it's interesting uh to 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 speak to him about this about his rationale about his motivation why he continues this fight and there has been a, a development in this fight he in fact uh sustained kind of a defeat uh, but not an ultimate defeat uh his his appeal uh, was rejected by uh, a court at a certain level. And what's next for him is maybe the Supreme Court. It might be, it may be the Supreme Court that weighs in on the question of bump stocks and one Utah looking to uh, hold on to his. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye. Uh, let me see. Is there anything else I need to remind you of for today's program? No, that'll do it. Uh, so we've got a lot to cover today on the show. Uh, Lisa Murkowski right now in the Senate is uh, addressing the, the witnesses. We're going to dip into this uh, from time to time. If it is continuing during my radio program, uh, we will also uh, stand by waiting for uh, Senator Romney to uh, address and uh, interrogate the witnesses uh, let me see here. I do have a lineup. So this is uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. She'll be followed by uh, a Democrat, uh, Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, then Tim Scott from South Carolina. And then uh, and then you'll hear from Mitt Romney. That will either take place uh, during David Janovic's show or during Boyd Matheson's show. Uh, But what I can guarantee you is that during my show, again, from one o'clock until three o'clock, we will rebroadcast some of the questions and answers, uh, questions coming from Mitt Romney and the answers coming from the panel of witnesses made up of Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, CDC Director Robert Redfield, and other individuals on the panel, including uh, this gentleman here, uh, Assistant Secretary for Health, uh, with the United States Department of Health and Human Services. So I'm going to say goodbye. Uh, I'll be back here at 10 o'clock tomorrow uh, for another edition of this Facebook Live deal we do each day. And then on the radio at from 1 to 3 today and every weekday on KSL News Radio, 102.7 FM and 1160 AM on our app, powered by Any Hour Services, as well as online at the website kslnewsradio.com. That's it for me. Thanks for hanging out with me this morning. Thanks for your comments. Uh, Thank you for your attention here. Uh, I'll catch you on the radio. That's it for me. Bye-bye.